fiddle. And uh, how many of you have ever felt like in your life in some situation, because the idea of being second fiddle is used all over the place in, in many different settings, but how many of you ever felt like second fiddle? Okay. Now, did you like love that? <laughs> Was that like exciting to realize that you were second fiddle in some respect? Well, I'm, I'm bringing this point, I think it's a pertinent point to, and, and subject to cover. Uh, Christmas starts with this idea of being second fiddle. When the story of Christmas in the Gospels is introduced, the, it doesn't begin with Jesus. It begins with this person named John the Baptist. How many of you guys ever heard John the Baptist? Okay, there's a few of you here. Great. John the Baptist was, a, was maybe a cousin, a relative of Jesus, and he and Jesus' life were just intertwined for a long time until John's uh, untimely death, which you read about in the Gospels. And Christmas begins, the story of Christmas, which we celebrate the birth of Jesus, begins with the, with the story of John the Baptist. And you can't understand, I mean, if you want to summarize the life of John the Baptist, it was about him being second fiddle. John the Baptist was second fiddle to Jesus in the most, <laughs> he's, he was the, the most extreme example of being the second fiddle that, that has ever existed and ever will exist. So if you could, if you have a Bible with you, open it to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read a short passage where an angel appears to John's father and tells him who John, who's, he's going to have a child because his father was an, was an old man at that point. His mother was, was uh, as they put it, along in years. And the angel appears to, to his father and says, you're going to have a child. I've heard your prayer because they didn't have any kids. And then he tells Zechariah, John's father, what John is who he is and, and what he's going to do, what his life's going to be like. So we're going to look at these four verses, and then we want to unpack them a little bit and talk about being a second fiddle, because John embodied that in the most amazing way. So Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 11, it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. They were in the temple in Jerusalem. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. And he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth or from his mother's womb. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story and this, this man and, and all he was and all he meant. Uh, we ask today you just open our hearts up to, to see in your word what you have for us today that, that we could learn uh, what true greatness is through this man's life and through the life of your son Christ. Amen. So 
John the Baptist was, his, his whole purpose was to be what was called a forerunner. So when, before Jesus came on the scene, before he was publicly revealed, actually John was the one who was going to, to be his uh, opening act. Uh, John was the opening act. He was the, the appetizer to Jesus' entree. He was, you know, the person that went ahead of Christ and got everyone ready for when Jesus came. And then John stepped out of the way. And Jesus stepped forward. And John was this second fiddle. Now, most of us, as I, as I uh, grasped <laughs> by your response, being second fiddle is never something that uh, people look forward to. In fact, you could say, if, if, if you can at all costs avoid being second fiddle, but if, if you can't avoid it, just endure it, right? That's typically the situation that we find ourselves in. That's the general attitude towards it because people say, uh, being a second fiddle, being sort of in someone's shadow, is it's going to stifle your personal development. It's going to hinder your professional development. It's going to frustrate your personal fulfillment. I mean, if you've been a second fiddle, you know that that's somewhat your experience, right? And this was John the Baptist's experience. And yet that attitude, which is so, it, it, it's almost as that attitude about being a second fiddle is almost as universal as being second fiddle is. Yet nothing could be more wrong than to have that kind of an attitude. Being second fiddle, as you're going to see from, as we've seen, we read this passage, God the Father said about John, he said, I'm assuming the angel said to Zachariah's father, John is going to be this forerunner, He's going to be second fiddle to Jesus, but he's going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. And so right off the bat, I mean, the takeaway point I want you to have today is playing second fiddle is the way to true greatness. Playing second fiddle is the way to true greatness. God saw John as great. In fact, Jesus said, up to the point that Jesus lived, no one who was ever born was greater than John. And yet he was the most famous, or, you know, as some of us would look, infamous second fiddle in, in history. Well, John understood something about playing second fiddle that, that we don't. He saw it was a calling, that playing second fiddle is a calling to live out. And John didn't just endure it, he embraced it. He understood that there's something in this. There's a possibility in being second fiddle. There's a possibility of greatness that escapes most people. And so he, he knew this was his calling, and so he embraced it completely. And, and John's name means, and, and so this is an idea, being second fiddle doesn't seem to be a pleasant experience. It was John's destiny God gave him, it's very, it was very rare in the Bible for God to name people before they were born, to tell their parents. Whenever they were named, that meant something very significant about who they were. And their name was often married to their destiny and their purpose. And the angel told Zechariah, 
this child's name is John. So you're not supposed to name him, and your wife's not supposed to name him, your relatives aren't supposed to name him. He's already named. You just call him that. And John means God is gracious. And so we don't associate being second fiddle with God being gracious to us. But God graciously gave John this calling to be second fiddle, and so he embraced it. He didn't question it. And because he didn't question it, he found things about being second fiddle that most people don't find because our attitude is is uniformly so negative about the idea that we have to play second fiddle to anybody in any way. John understood that playing second fiddle is this opportunity to seize. We look at it as a chore, as something to endure. But you can see in the Gospels, everywhere John was mentioned, he played out his role. When, When all these people were following him, and you can read in John 1, 35 to 37, at a certain point, John uh, sees Jesus, and he, he, there's some of his disciples that there, and he goes, that's the one I told you about. That's the Messiah. That's the Lamb of God. And it says, they left him and followed Jesus. Those were two of the 12 apostles. So John was losing like... His, his choice leaders and trainees. But he was doing it joyfully. And if, in, in the book of John, uh, there's John, John's uh, disciples come up to him in verse John 3.26, and it says, oh, and, so it was a calling. It was an opportunity. It was also a reward. John saw the opportunity to be second fiddle, that it, that it offered a reward that he could receive, that there's this payoff to being second fiddle that, that was rich. And he, in this, this passage, he talks about it. Uh, his disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, that man, they're talking about Jesus, who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified, well, he's baptizing, and everyone's going to him. <laughs> To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. And he's talking about this custom when he talks about the friend of the bridegroom and the bride and the bridegroom. Uh, typically, when, when, when someone would get engaged, they, they would ask one of their best friends, I want you to uh, you know, take care of my bride until we come back and we have our ceremony, our wedding. And usually they would go away and they would prepare their home. And, and sometimes, because oftentimes the marriages were arranged, and so people wouldn't live in the same town. And so uh, uh, the friend the bridegroom would be greatly inconvenienced and his job was to make sure that nobody horned in on the, the bridegroom's bride and alienated her affections, you know, started making out with her, any, any kind of, you know, hanky-panky. But also the friend of the bridegroom, he couldn't become too close to the bride. And so it was a, it was a, a very challenging kind of a responsibility. And John said, that's my role. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. And... That, that all the people in the world are the bride, 
all the, the, the Jewish people that he was preparing for Jesus, they're not for John, they, they're for Jesus. That the bridegroom, Jesus, has the bride. And so John was willing to do everything he could to prepare the bride for the bridegroom. And then when the bridegroom's voice, which was, you know, that would be sort of, I'm back, it's time for the wedding, whenever that would happen, boom. The, the wedding ceremony, the preparations would immediately begin to, to kick into high gear. And then the, the friend of the bridegroom, who'd done all this tireless, you know, unacknowledged work, and, and had to guard his own heart, not try to, to alienate the bride's affections, he would have to step out of the way, and it wasn't about him at all. And everything that he had done is sort of forgotten. And John said, that's who I am. That's my job. He's going to increase. I'm going to decrease. And, but what he said was, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. It's now complete. And when, when we embrace the idea of being second fiddle, there's a reward and a joy that we can find there. That, that's, it's, sometimes it's difficult to mine it because being a a second, being, being the second fiddle to anyone is, does feel like I'm less. But John testified that there's this joy and delight that you can find in being a second fiddle that transforms that experience completely. John found it. And the whole Christmas story, which we talk about, it, you know, it's always about Jesus, what it is all about Jesus. But I'm going to to show you in a second. Jesus himself embodied this idea of being second fiddle. John was the first sort of second fiddle. And then Jesus came along and he was the ultimate second fiddle. And Jesus embodied it in a way that even John couldn't. But what what would this look like in our day-to-day life if we were to play second fiddle in work and relationships and, you know, our normal day-to-day lives. What would it look like? Well, if it would mean that where you work, you would stop looking at your job as a stepping stone to the one you really want. And it would mean that you said, I'm going to totally invest in this job and I'm going to do the best I can for God's glory and for the good of this, these people I work for and for my customers. And if, if opportunities open up for you for another position, you would have the same attitude there. But you wouldn't look at this as a stepping stone. In a sense, if you were to become a true second fiddle where you worked, that would be your destination job. And I guarantee you, God would make it this satisfying, amazing, delightful experience for you on a regular basis, just like John's disciples couldn't understand why would you be excited that everyone's leaving you and going to Jesus, because that's what he knew his job was. And he, because you know that's your job, you find this profound satisfaction in it. But that has to happen first. That sense of, that 
Being a second fiddle is a calling, and it's an opportunity. To, it's a calling to fulfill. It's an opportunity to, to, to seize, and it's a, there's a reward to receive. You've got to do that first before the reward comes. This commitment to become a second fiddle has to, has to precede all those other things. Uh, we have to look around in our relationships, and when we recognize envy in our hearts for what someone else has that we don't have, anybody here not wrestle with envy regularly? I mean, it's part of the human condition, but our, our culture stirs up envy to market things to us. We don't, we, we don't need the seven deadly sins uh, we got marketing. <laughs> and that's not altogether bad, but the envy that we recognize, what we have to do is we have to fight that and say, I'm not going to focus on what someone else has. I'm going to be thankful that they have that. I'm going to thank God that he gave them that and that opportunity. I'm going to thank God for what I have and where I'm at. I'm going to find pleasure in my situation because God is greater than my circumstances. And like C.S. Lewis said, joy is not the absence of pain. It's the presence of God. And so we can find satisfaction in any circumstance we're in if we have that attitude and we really plug into him. And John knew that. Uh, another way that... You can, you can play second fiddle is. All of us are in situations that are frustrating. And we can look at the people that make our lives frustrating, and we can allow that to gnaw on us and eat at us until stuff comes out of us that, 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 that poisons us and poisons the, 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 the people around us. Or we can look at the situation we're in and go, it's my job. Not to be served, but to serve other people. I'm going to encourage these people that are frustrating me. I'm going to find some way of encouraging them, even though they're frustrating to me. Because part of what frustration is, it's desire unfulfilled. It's my agenda is not being realized. And I'm going to make the people around me uh, aware of it. I'm going to make it unpleasant on them so that they will stop making it unpleasant on me. Well, what does that do? That just doubles the unpleasantness, right? But that's our, usually our chosen approach is things are unpleasant, so I'm going to add some unpleasantness to it because that'll really make it better, right? Anybody recognize that? Anybody? Is that close to home? Well, Kathy and I were uh, out with some friends uh, in the city a couple of years ago, and it was in the summer, and it was an outdoor event. And we were on a date, and so I paid for valet parking. And uh, they, you know, I just gave the guy, you know, it, it, isn't it wild, the trust that we have? You give someone your car keys. <laughs> you, you believe they're going to bring your car back, right? And we've watched the, sh the shows where people jump in your car and they go, you know, uh, riding all over the city and, and you know, do all kinds of things. And, but... I, I trusted these valets, and, and, it, and actually, they, I'm not going to tell you a, a terrible story about 
uh, valets abusing my car. But we uh, watched this outdoor show, and then Kathy and I and our friends were in line, and uh, there was three valets, so one of them kind of manned the station with the keys, and we were, we were about 30 people back from it, and it's, as we were talking, you know, we became aware, you know, we're not moving. <laughs> we were here about 10 minutes, we're not moving, or it doesn't seem like we're moving very fast. And so we kind of start, you know, you look down the line, and uh, you, you just, suddenly you realize, well, this, is, this valet thing is not working the way we thought it would work. And what it turns out is the, the valet parking kiosk was two blocks from where they parked the cars. And then they parked the cars two blocks away, and it was in a parking garage. So we're sitting there, and about, about every five to six minutes, we'd go, all right. We just sit there and talk and talk and talk. And well, you can imagine the, the general environment around that kiosk became pretty tense. And then the tension worked back through the line as time went on, right? Because when you're, the further back you're in the line, the longer you're waiting, right? You're, you're, you're calculating, oh my gosh, what is going on up there, right? The people at the front, they're tense, but they're the least tense. As you move further and further back, so I could feel behind me, you know, people are pulling out switchblades and, and, you know, guns. It, it's going to get ugly. And, and, and then we get close enough, and, I can, and, and the guy behind the thing, he's lost some keys. The numbers are mixed up. It's like it's a mess, right? And I'm realizing, on top of the fact that these poor guys are running two blocks in the summer heat and coming back and you know, bringing the cars back and it takes forever, they're still trying to figure out, like they'll bring a car back and it isn't the person who's at the line. And they, they look, is this, is this anybody's car? You know, it's like one of those things. <laughs> Not, it wasn't well run. So all of a sudden, in the middle of this, all this, and the tension is mounting, right? Have you been there before? It's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Somebody gets out of the line and goes over to a nearby uh, bottle water machine, gets a bunch of bottled water, and walks up to the kiosk where the guys are and says, gives them the water and gives the guys the water and says, thank you. Uh, we know you're working really hard. We appreciate, you know, that you're in a difficult situation. We just want you to know it's cool. You know, we're not going to get upset at you. And it was the weirdest thing. It was like the atmosphere around that just changed. I was watching it, and, I, and the lady in front of me, who was really going at it, <laughs> going, I'm about to lose it right here, you know, uh, she goes, she said something to the effect that, oh my gosh, that was so thoughtful. Those poor guys have been running, man, because I mean, they were drenched in sweat, these poor guys. And, and there was 50 people past me, and there was about 20 people in front of me. It was a, it was a big outdoor event, and this was like the main <laughs> valet parking with two guys picking the cars up for like 400 cars probably. Just, it just, it's just like the atmosphere changed because somebody took some water and went up and just played second fiddle and said, it's okay, you guys. You know, we know you're working hard. Here's some water. We hope you, you know, that, that you know, this helps 
cool things off for you, and hopefully you'll get our cars here quicker. It just changed the atmosphere. See, playing second fiddle is the way to true greatness, not getting what you want when you want it. John knew this, so how how did he muster the, the character and the motivation, whatever? How does anybody do that? How in the middle of being really frustrated do you just go, let's do something for these guys that are frustrating us and, and make a difference? Well, in the book of Mark, Jesus talked about this. He addressed this. Here's what he said. Two of his disciples were... Uh, angling to get the, 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 the two choice places when they believed his kingdom was going to come. He's going to be ruling in Jerusalem, and they wanted to be on his right and left. And we know that there was also, uh, right around this time, another discussion among his disciples about who was the greatest. So two of them wanted Jesus to declare that they were the greatest, and the other ones had all been arguing about who's the greatest. I mean, can you hear those kind of those conversations like, uh, hey, you know, uh, one of the miracles I just did on the ministry trip, they're going to they're gonna name a street in Jerusalem after me. And another one, oh, yeah, you know, there's all these, as soon as Jesus is, lets me get my own disciples, there's all kinds of people lining up to be my disciple. And people are talking about me here. I mean, they're all telling stories about how great they are. They're arguing about it, right? And you may think, oh, gosh, that just sounds so childish. But we do the same sort of thing, Right? It may not be as crass as what they were doing. Jesus' disciples, the leaders of the church, are arguing about who's the greatest. And so here's what Jesus said to them. He said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be last. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me read that again. So when Jesus saw this bickering and this you know, childish, immature kind of an attitude, and he had modeled things for them that, that seemed like they, they just totally didn't get. And so he said, you know, and he reminds them of the way the world worked around them. He said, this is the system that that we're all immersed in. Among the Gentiles, those who want to be the big shots, they want to rule over people. They want to be the lords and the officials who exercise authority. But he says, not so with you. So he, he challenges them. He says, you guys have embraced a an attitude that, that completely uh, clashes with me and what I teach and even what you say you've embraced. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must first be your servant. No, he doesn't say first. I added that. That's not a good thing to do. Let me go back. <laughs> it's the John Lee version here. 
Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. So he says being a servant is a means to an end. It's not a means to an end. If you want to be great, be a servant. That's what he said. Be a second fiddle. And whoever wants to be first must be last or the slave of all. Then then the punchline. For even the Son of Man, him, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, Jesus challenged their idea of what constituted success in life and the good life and what greatness was. He challenged the idea of the world around them, the whole world system, and it still works this way, doesn't it? It still works this way. Whoever wants to be great wants other people to do their will. But Jesus said, no. Whoever is great is a servant. You don't serve to become great. You're great if you're a servant. If you embrace the idea that second fiddle is the destination job, you, in God's eyes, are great. You're first. Even if in the world's eyes, in the, in the eyes of the system, in the estimation of the system you live in and you function in, you are last. God says, if you've embraced your calling and you're investing there, you are first. You are first in his eyes. Now, that doesn't sell well in, in our society. It just doesn't. It doesn't sell well in church. It doesn't sell well anywhere. It didn't sell well with Jesus' disciples. And Jesus backed up his, his assertion with, think about me. You've watched me serve people. You've watched me. And you're amazed over and over at who I am and what I do and what I can do. And it's like every day you realize I'm greater than you thought I was. So he's saying, I'm first. But he said, look at me. I'm the son of man, which to them, that term, son of man, was loaded with significance. It, it, it was from the book of Daniel, where Daniel was given this word from God that the son of man would come and rule the nations. And the disciples were increasingly aware that Jesus was that son of man who was going to rule over everything, over the earth, over all of creation. That his word would go. And he was saying, that son of man came to serve. The son of man came to play second fiddle. And I think they're just like, now, that's that's upsetting enough. But what Jesus says next, I think, is even more challenging. He says, not only did I not come to be served, but I came to to give my life as a ransom. And here's the punchline. If you want to know how you find it within you to play second fiddle as a lifestyle and not just muster up a little you know, extra humility here and there in your life, but if you want to embrace it as a lifestyle and follow Jesus, Jesus says you have to first recognize that that's the way that things are supposed to work then you have to 
look at your own heart. Because what Jesus said here, and, and it kind of escapes a lot of people's notice. When Jesus said, I came not just to serve, he didn't come just to be an example. A lot of people reduce the gospel down to Jesus is a great example. And he was a great example. But if he didn't do more than be a great example, that would be a curse to look at Jesus and try to be like him. Have you ever tried to be like Jesus? Is it, is it easy? I mean, that's a high bar. And if that's the bar it takes to be accepted by God, and it is, if Jesus is saying, this is God's standard, me, that's discouraging. That's disheartening. That's crushing. But what he does next is he says, I didn't just come to be an example by, by being a servant. He was that, but he was living out the law. He was obeying God perfectly. He was being the servant of the Lord that all of us are called to be faithfully, but he was doing it for us. And then it's, he says, I, gave my, I, came, I came to give my life as a ransom. And a ransom was, this, was a, a, a huge price that was paid to emancipate a slave. So what he's saying, in effect, is, if you can see you're trapped in the system of looking down at the idea of being second fiddle, if you're trapped in the system of pursuing your own agenda and getting your own way and doing whatever it takes to make your way through the world and get what you want, and some people are admired because they're willing to, to get harder and harder to push further and further. Jesus said, that system makes you a slave. And in their minds, they would immediately have gone to think of what slavery, the worst kind of slavery was. The transaction of human bodies, the, dis, the, the disrespecting of people, the abuse, the, you know, the exploitation, the, the helplessness of a slave. And he, was, he would say, if you're in the grip of that system, you are helpless, captured, controlled by your own self-interest. It ruins you, and it ruins everyone around you. And I came to ransom you out of that system and put you under my kingdom and my system. And I'm the only one that can do that. And so, if you see in your own heart Selfish ambition is, is just like the disciples. It's present in you. Then you're a slave to it. And you know, think, of, think for a moment of the track record in your life as you work back through relationships and experiences and jobs and etc. and see how your selfish ambition, your selfishness, has wrecked your life. And I promise you, without Jesus, if you project forward, it's not going to be any different. Even if you said today, I want to try to be like Jesus, you're only going to be able to improve around the margins. The, 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 the heart of who we are 
is captured by that self-interest. We're turned in on ourselves. Once we turn away from God, we turn in on ourselves and it consumes us. And and then it consumes everyone around us. That's why Jesus and his life is called good news. Because when you're a slave and someone shows up at the slave market or where you are owned and says, I want to set that person free. I want to pay the price so they can be free. Doesn't that sound like good news? That's what Jesus does when we welcome him, when we open our heart up to him, when we acknowledge that we need freedom. So I want to ask you today, you know, you hear this story, uh, you may be a follower of Jesus or you might not. And, you know, you may, as you're sitting here, be struck by the fact that, wow, this, if this is what being a Christian is about, I don't know if I've ever bought into this before. Because a lot of people come to church hoping that it's going to fix them, hoping that it can help their life to be better, a little bit better. But what we're supposed to come to church to do is we're supposed to come to church to die. To die to who we were and to be reborn into who God wants us to be. And who and that person looks like Jesus. It's us looking like Jesus. But we can't do it in our own strength. We can only do it by surrendering. We can only do it by welcoming him and what he did. It's like Jesus said you have to let go if you want to be able to Hold on. It, it, it's, it, you know, I've said before, it's like those weird, the sound of one hand clapping sort of statements, right? How do you, how do you lose your life and gain life? If, if I don't engage in the dog-eat-dog battle, I'm going to get eaten. That's what happens is. You either eat the other dogs or the other dogs eat you. No, Jesus says, that's... That is just as ugly as it sounds. Get out of that system. Get out of it. I offer you a way out of it. He offers you a way out of it today, but you have to choose today. You have a a simple choice. I'm just going to ask you to make it. And In fact, the girls, if you want to come up uh, for worship, we'll we'll close with that song. I'm going to ask you to make this choice. It's the system or it's Jesus. And some of you may think, I've already chose Jesus, but you're still living by that system. You're still, everything, every, every point in your life is just you wrestling to try to get, to get, to get, to get. And you're not looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust you to give me everything I need. And I'm not going to look at everything as just a stepping stone for something else. And this person is just something I can use. These people, this opportunity. I'm going to become what I was meant to be, which is second fiddle to you. John the Baptist gave us the perfect example of that. And then Jesus topped him. No wonder John could step back and go, I don't want you looking at me. I don't have anything to offer you. I'm pointing to Jesus. He's he's got what you really need. So I want to ask you to do something today. If 
You know, if this feels relevant to you, like you realize, I'm part of this system. I don't want to be part of it. I want to be free from it. The only person that can do that for you is Jesus. And so I want to ask you to do something today. In fact, why don't you stand with me? We'll go at it this way. Jesus paid a price for you on the cross to ransom you. He broke the power of self-interest in your heart. Now, you may think, yeah, I don't know if that works that way. The testimony of people who follow Jesus is if you open your heart up to him and you keep opening your heart up to him, he will break the power of that self-interest in you. His life will come in you and he will give you the ability to be a happy second fiddle in, in an increase, to an increasing degree for the rest of your life. But the key is you have to open your heart up to him. You have to open your heart up and you have to... You have to Maybe you're sitting here and you realize, I didn't realize I was this messed up. I hope some of you realize that today, that you see you're part of this world system, this dog-eat-dog world system, and you're playing by its rules. And Jesus is saying, I want to rescue you from that. Now, he's not going to take you out of that system. And that's why he says, I'm sending you out there as sheep among wolves. When you buy into this and you become a sheep, part of God's flock, all of a sudden, you feel threatened by how bad it is around you. You should feel that way. That would be normal. Because the world is abnormal all around us. So, what I want to ask you to do is make a choice today to say, Jesus, I really need you. Self-interest is controlling my life, and I want to be free of it. And I believe that, that you offer that solution, not as a means to your end, but so that you can become the person God made you to be, that you do it through Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something that's, that's kind of awkward. Uh, and you don't have to do it if, if you don't feel comfortable doing it, but I, I promise you there's a benefit to doing it. Is I want you, Jesus said, you have to become like a child to, to experience his kingdom. And, and the most normal thing in the world, if you've ever seen children, is for them to go like this. It's like, help, pick me up, I need you. It's this picture of dependency that we're, we work really hard not to ever show we need, don't we? But today, it, maybe you're in that moment where you need in a, in a very personal way. And I believe Jesus is speaking to, to many of you and he's just waiting for you to respond to him. And that he wants to come into your life. Some of you for the first time, others of you, just again, his presence just to, to fill you again. And we all know our need and in this, in this self-interest when it's the root of our conflicts. It's the root of all the problems we have in our life. Every one of them. So, I want you to just close your eyes 